podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello there guys, what is going on? Daniel Childs back here again for another podcast. Hope you're doing well, hope you're keeping safe. Now, even though Chelsea are back in Premier League action, we did want to reflect a little bit more on that record-breaking deal for Enzo Fernandez on transfer deadline day. It's a huge deal in Chelsea's history, the biggest deal in Chelsea's history, a British record fee for a player. And um, yeah, we wanted to get some more sort of in-depth chat around it and kind of the way the deal happened, what was the major breakthrough from a Chelsea perspective and the people involved in that deal. And I'm very glad to say back on the podcast, one of my favourite people, not only reporting about Chelsea, but just speaking about Chelsea, uh, Chief Chelsea Writer at Football.London, Adam Newson. How are you doing, Adam? Welcome back to the show. I'm good, thank you, mate. Thanks for having me back on. No worries. Uh, are you as tired as I think a lot of reporters are after this? Not just this week, and I know deadline day is brutal, but just the January window. Yes, very much so. Um, to be fair, I don't even think it's it's the January window. I was actually talking to, to Simon Johnson at The Athletic about this yesterday. We're about a week and a half out from uh, Abramovich putting the club up for sale. And uh, ever since then, it's been an absolute sort of ride of different emotions and, and just an incredible workload. So yeah, it's been a busy January, but also a busy 12 months from a Chelsea perspective. Can't believe it's almost a year since that happened. That is... That's insane. It really mm. is. So, uh, and it's just, it, it's true. It's been nonstop, hasn't it? Pretty much since then in, in various ways, whether it's sanctions, takeover, transfers, games, changes in head coach, World Cup, another, more transfers. But let's talk about uh, Enzo Fernandez. Before we actually, just one quick question is, is the reaction to Chelsea spending that I have, find, I have found quite funny since deadline day. I've seen reports suggesting and claiming that we need to abolish the transfer window now. Um, I, I saw one report that I know a lot of Chelsea fans uh, didn't like, or, or sorry, an opinion piece, I'd say, from a certain journalist um, that claimed that Todd Bowley should be paying nurses based on what he's been paying for some players, uh, which raised eyebrows. I mean, just sort of your reaction to Chelsea spending is crazy. Like, I, I don't, I'm not, going to be tribal about that is especially for a January window but you know do you think some of it is overblown um and it seems to always be about Chelsea rather than say other clubs when they spend huge amounts of money yes and no I mean look Chelsea have as you say they spent a, a small fortune in January combined to um a lot of money they spent in the summer as well I think they've I think this can be judged probably in two or three years when we see how the rest of Chelsea's transfer strategy plays out because there has always been a feeling that Chelsea are going to go very big early on. And then over time, once they get the sort of squad where they want it to be, once they get sort of the development squad further down to where they want it to be, they, they want to have a, a very deep pool of players. And, and we'll probably see that borne out in years to come uh, with the, the multi-club model as well. But look, a lot of the spending they've done this this month or sorry last month and in the summer you can argue was necessary um and in in, in years to come as, as it probably dwindles i think you can see it as a as a way of them front loading of, of re you know backing their investment early on and then letting it play out so it is very easy to judge of course it is We're, we all are guilty of judging um a lot of things in life far too soon without knowing the consequences of it and and how things play out in the future but uh but from a Chelsea supporters' perspective, you look at the squad now, 
you look at the squad in the summer where it will be obviously with with Malagusto joining permanently and um you know, Kunku Kame, I mean, from a Chelsea fan's perspective alone, just focused on the football, it's a, a very exciting time and um, and it looks like Chelsea are building something very special. So let's get into Enzo Fernandez. Um, it seemed at the start of the month this was progressing and then it died and then it came back in the final few days of the transfer window and went all the way to the deadline. I guess just focusing on deadline day and around those those final few days of the window when it progressed and Chelsea got that optimism again how did this deal come about because publicly at least if you're just watching this unfold earlier in the month I mean it seemed like Benfica were going to hold firm when a coach comes out and says that I was speaking with Liam Toomey last week about this like when a coach comes out and says what he says about a player you think he's probably got um, the backing from the hierarchy to do so and Enzo Fernandez kissing the badge so what was the key ingredient that made Chelsea go back and think that they can get this over the line? Well, as you say, it, it did collapse rather spectacularly in the early sort of part of January, um, and Benfica were very much pissed off um, with Chelsea's behaviour and what they or what they perceived to be Chelsea's behaviour of, of sort of verbally agreeing something and then trying to lowball them in in face to face discussions. Um, so things did seem, you know. You know, I, I sort of probably used the term the deal was very much on life support then. Um, but Chelsea did manage to rebuild uh, relationships, um, kept the dialogue open, which was very important. Um, and I think it was, I can't exactly remember the timeline, probably with a week and a half of the window to go um, without, you know, probably revealing too much. I think I mentioned to you privately that there was some hope that, that Enzo could suddenly be done. Um now, look, you hear a lot of different things as a reporter and it's then your job to try and stand that up eventually you know it did become clear that that that, that, that sort of early whisper was was legitimate um and so with probably about five six days of the window it suddenly seemed like okay Chelsea are definitely going back in for this there's definitely confidence on Chelsea's part that they could do it and then it was all down to how tense the negotiations would be with Benfica um and I think the good things from Chelsea's perspective is that when they did go back in with to Benfica that they weren't shut down immediately. Yes, Benfica stood firm. They said, we wanted this much. We want the clause. But there was a dialogue there to be had. And then it was on Chelsea. Um, it was more on Chelsea, of course, to then work and push and and find a way to make Enzo Fernandez happen. Um, and eventually, as we got into the final day of the window, Chelsea representatives were out in Portugal. Benedict Barley was was uh, was in London, um, driving this forward. Um, and eventually... Chelsea managed to get it done with about an hour and a half uh, of the window remaining. They got the deal agreed and, and everything was signed off. And you know, from what I gather, the paperwork went through with a few minutes uh, to spare. So, um, so yeah, very, a very sort of long process. But throughout, to be fair, especially the last week, um, whenever I spoke to people near the deal, um, and you know, I, I put this out you know, publicly, there was always confidence on Chelsea's part. There was always a, a feeling they could get it done. Um and even when negotiations were tense um, and it, it seemed that they were going to hit a roadblock or were hitting a roadblock, there was still this belief of we will find a way, we will find a way. And, you know, as, uh, as, as, as it's been, you know, made evident, evident, evident even over the last few weeks when uh, Top Bolian and Badeo Bali set their mind to getting a player, it usually means that they arrive. Yeah. Well, we saw this in the Mikhailo Mudrik case a few weeks ago. You know, Chelsea got the deal done so swiftly, even with... Stiff competition from Arsenal in the end. Um, I did just want to ask about uh, another midfielder, Moises Casado, because Chelsea, as reported by the Athletic, did report 
um sorry did um bid 55 million apparently that was rejected i mean so i mean timeline wise do we know if if that's just kind of like feeling out another player like could this be a potential if the enzo deal collapses or was it after that moment that they kind of then got the uh, like the the signal okay we're back in for enzo because it wasn't just Casado. There was talks of Onana from Everton. There have been talks for other midfielders. So there was quite clearly alternatives that Chelsea were looking at throughout this month. Um, but Enzo kept on being the name. I mean, Enzo was always the priority for the for the club. Um, I don't, honestly, I'd have to go back and look at the timeline of, of certain things and when sort of certain messages were sent to me. Um, but the Casado, look, Chelsea obviously know Casado. Paul Wynn Stanley knows Casado very well and I think he might have even signed him um, for Brighton so he is a player that the ownership or sorry those in the sporting team know Graham Potter as well but from their perspective Enzo was always a priority it's kind of the logical thing to do of course to sound out other options to make sure you, you, you're not just putting all your eggs into one basket um, but I know there was some speculation in the last couple of days of the window that Chelsea would maybe go back in for Caicedo or, or maybe it would be Enzo and Caicedo um, I mean, I was always told once it got to the last couple of days that Caicedo was was very much off the table because because of Brighton's stance and and Chelsea weren't going to go and pursue that again. And I guess you know when you have people that you know a lot of people that you brought in from Brighton, um, they probably understand the club better than anyone else. And maybe when Tony Bloom says and uh, Moses Caicedo is not being sold, maybe you have that relationship and understanding of okay. Tony Bloom said this, it's not going to happen. You did mention uh, Paul Wynn Stanley there. And I do want to ask about sort of the backroom staff or the transfer think tank, as it was labelled a few months ago, that I think has now been officially completed, actually. Like Chelsea did release a statement. I think Joe Shields and, and Lawrence Stewart, I think, have now joined the club. There are some other names involved that I definitely suggest people go and search out. But just in terms of Wynn Stanley, because his name kept on coming up this month, um, I, I just from your information, their involvement in this process compared to the summer when there wasn't this kind of structure in place and, and maybe the difference it made in these negotiations? I think you go back to the summer and it was it was a very difficult situation to take over a club in simply because of the time of it. I mean, I think the takeover went through maybe about a week or 10 days before the transfer window officially opened. Um, and of course, the you know, these are new guys to to football ownership and they're in a situation where they've lost their sort of standout centre-back in Antonio Rudiger, another very, very good centre-back in, in Andreas Christensen. You've got the Romelu Lukaku situation, of course. So, I mean, there was an element of them having to be reactive rather than proactive in the summer. They, they had to sort of plug holes. They had to try and, and give Thomas Tuchel what he felt he wanted early on. Um, and I think they probably learned as they went on through that summer and, and have said, you know, I've said this on, on other podcasts Todd Bowley, Bedelic Barlian and Jose Feliciano are very, very bright people. You don't become billionaires through finance without being incredibly smart. So I think that summer was such an important learning process for them. And they got to the sort of middle of the summer, sort of tail end of the summer, and they realised that there's no point hiring people into these recruitment positions just for the sake of it. They wanted to make sure that they got the right people in, that they didn't rush their choices, and that by the time they'd get these guys in, it would give them enough time to, to really bed in for January. Of course, uh, Joe Shields and, and Lloyd Stewart had to see out their, their sort of respective time at uh, Monaco and Southampton. But uh, yeah, now they're aboard. Paul Winstanley has, has been very, very uh, sort of front and centre throughout January. He was the one leading uh, the Madrid. He was with, with uh, Iqbali out in, in Turkey getting that done. 
he was a guy leading Enzo. Um, so he's very much taken this sort of senior role on and has been very influential in helping get deals over the line. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this structure plays out. Um, as you say, everyone is now there from this re- recruitment team. Um, I think Christopher Vivelle's uh, title has been tweaked a little bit more, so he'll be focusing more on, on global uh, recruitment um, and maybe sort of when the multi-club system really sort of set, is set up, which I guess is logical because he has experience of this from Red Bull. He knows he knows that set up well. Um, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. And, and it is going to be interesting because you have a, you're going to have a lot of different voices in the room. You're going to have a lot of different opinions on players. There's going to be a lot of recommendations and it is going to be intriguing to see how it's all collated and eventually settled upon um, and who ends up leading it. And and I guess if, if anyone else joins down the line, we'll, we'll see on, on that front as well. I, I do think the Enzo thing is quite funny on the player side. It's kind of a flip of what happened in the summer where you know Chelsea went into, say, the Rafinha deal. And the player player's heart was always set on Barcelona. And that was the thing that really undermined that deal in the end. And I know Jules Koundé was a little bit of a different situation. But, you know, there were periods during the summer. De Ligt was another one who, you know, Chelsea were apparently in for, but then wanted to go to Bayern Munich. So in this case, it seemed like Enzo Fernandez pretty much from the start of this month wanted this move to happen. I mean, is that also, I, I know it sounds like an obvious thing to say, understatement, but like his ambition to make the move happen it, was that also something that gave Chelsea that constant optimism that you kept on hearing about compared to just, we have the finances to make this deal happen? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it became very clear early on that Enzo would be keen. Um, and I guess it's maybe just a time thing. Uh, over the last few months, the Chelsea vision, I suppose, has become clearer. Um, whereas in the summer, you had a new ownership who were scrambling around a bit and, and maybe that's a harder sell. Whereas now it's very clear, so you've got the recruitment team set up, you've got the the sort of management structure, you've got a new head coach that you want to to, to invest in, and you can pitch the vision to players. Um, you you know it's a, it's an easier sell when you see people like Mikhailo Mudrik signing up. Um, you, you, as, as a player, you see you know okay this this these guys are serious. They're trying to get a lot of young talent. They want to make Chelsea really competitive, and and of course that helps. Um, and yeah, Enzo Fernandez was very keen to make this move. Benfica were quite keen to try and keep him tied down to the summer, even if it meant selling him to Chelsea now. Um, and I know there have been reports in Portugal that said uh, that Enzo basically said, no, I want to go now. I want to join Chelsea. Um, and, if, you know, if those are correct and I have no reason to doubt those, then that is some job from the Chelsea recruitment team to to convince a player who is almost or who almost certainly would have won a title um, with Benfica and played in the Champions League uh, as well to swap that for a club that is currently 10th in the Premier League and faces a battle just to get into the top four. So, um, so yeah, Chelsea are, are sort of making very good strides in terms of how they're pitching to players. Um, and I think players can really now see the, the longer-term plan for what Chelsea want to try and do and um, and where they want to go as a club again. Yeah, I mean, West London is always going to be a, a big negotiation pool for me. Like, you know, you've got Harrods, you've got Stamford Bridge. It's a lovely area. Just can't I mean, to, West to be London. fair, you know, Lisbon is quite nice, though. Yeah, but come on, it ain't West London. Come on, <laughs> SW5, SW6, you know, that, that is where it's at. Um, the final question is probably the toughest one, uh, but we know watching, covering Chelsea, these transfers, when, when Chelsea go big on transfers, it doesn't usually work out, which is, you know, the one thing I, I think I'd be naive to not bring up in this situation. I mean, the most recent example we have He's currently out on loan into Milan after a pretty dismal season. 
This mm. is a player who's only had, what, six months of European football? Not even that. Um, there is a risk, right? But I mean, it, it's kind of that risk-reward thing that it seems like this new ownership is going for, of, of sort of going, are Chelsea grabbing, in a lot of cases, not even the next be- next big thing, because I think a lot of people think Enzo's the big thing now. But, you know, it's it, there is risk, Chelsea history-wise, that when we do spend a lot, it hasn't worked out. And they, they kind of have, this new ownership has to kind of buck that trend, right? Yeah, of course. But I think Graham Potter made it, you know, summed it up perfectly in his pre-match press conference yesterday. Every transfer is a gamble. There, There is an inherent risk to every player you bring into a club. There are a multitude of reasons why a deal may not work or why a player may not settle um, or perform at his best. Of course, you flip in the £106 million transfer fee and then, and then yes, there, there's a there's a stronger desire for that to work. Of course there is. You, you want it to work just from a financial perspective. Um, but I think in years past, and, and you know, I, I, without wanting to do a disservice, and, and you know, nobody wants to belittle the the success Chelsea enjoyed in, in the Abramovich era in terms of for supporters, but I don't think there was always the clearest idea of, of why Chelsea were maybe signing a player beyond the fact that that player was supposedly very talented. Um you look at the Lukaku deal as probably the biggest indication of that. I mean, it was a deal that the club were were happy with. It was a it was a deal Thomas Tuchel was happy with and signed off on. Um, but it was a deal done in hindsight without any consideration for the fact that Lukaku probably was never going to fit into to the style of play Tuchel wanted, despite Tuchel feeling that he could mould him into someone who did. Um, Personality-wise, I guess it, it it proved to be quite a big clash um, as well. So you'd like this recruitment team, you know, having having football specialists, having recruitment specialists in in your club, having the contacts around the game through these people as well. I think makes a huge amount of difference. Um, and I think there will be a, a greater understanding on, on Chelsea's part going forward about the players they want and and the, the sort of personalities they want as well. Um, and I think you know. Grandpa said a, a, a very nice little quote, you know, signing players is easy, signing the right players isn't. And I think that's always going to be the challenge. But you'd, you'd like to think with the recruitment team that's in place, with the far more data-led approach that they're having, with the sort of knowledge and, and sort of expertise of the people they've hired, um, that Chelsea will avoid falling into, you know, expensive sort of mistakes that they've made in the past. And, and maybe, you know, reactionary signings that they've made as well to try and plug holes rather than sort of being a long-term strategy behind it. Yeah, as I wrote in a piece uh, on Football London this week, you know, we don't know whether this strategy of signing these young players over long-term contracts is going to work out. You know, no, as you've just perfectly demonstrated, like it's it transfers, there are so many different variables that come into it. But I think you can't accuse, number one, I think it, it's silly to accuse this ownership of not having a plan because it's quite clear they do. It's just whether it's going to work or not. And in the second part of that is that you can't say they lack ambition. I mean, that was one of the concerns when I think for a lot of fans, when Abramovich left was that you're going to get owners in who can invest in the same way. And I think that they have proven in the first, not even year, they are committed to invest on serious players across Europe and across the world. And now we have to see if it all comes together. So, you know, as I say, I think it's an exciting time. It's an unpredictable time to know what's going to happen with Chelsea. It's been chaos the last year, but hopefully it does work out. Sorry, I was going to say, just to finish, they're they're also sort of covering bases a little bit as well here. By bringing in players who are 21, 22, 
by giving them longer contracts, but without huge exorbitant wages that we've seen in the past, it gives you that wiggle room. If in two, three years' time, Mikhail Mudrik, worst case scenario, hasn't worked out for Chelsea as they wanted, he'll still be 24, 25. He won't be on £300,000 a week. He'll be on a far more accessible wage for a buying club. And it by, by investing in younger players and by not loading them up with huge salaries, it does give you that wiggle room to, to make mistakes and to not be sort of hamstrung by them for years to come. So, yes, it's a smart transfer policy in terms of trying to get Chelsea back to the top, but it's also a smart transfer policy in the sense of offering some protection down the line for if this, this sort of uh, process that they're going through doesn't work out. Yeah, on the, the wage thing, I mean, that was a frustration for me looking at it last season when you had some players with the likes of, say, Timo Werner on like over 200 grand a week reportedly. And then you have players like Mason Mount and Reese James on for what is a Premier League player at that level, relatively low wages. And it just didn't make sense in terms of the output of those players. And as I think a lot of us, uh, particularly from a fan perspective, we're so um, trained to look at a fee. You know, people you know like yourself who report on transfers. A lot of the time, it seems to be wages can actually be more defining to whether a transfer happens or not compared to a an actual fee. So, hopefully, as you say, that that's maybe something that actually hasn't been picked up a lot. I know that there's kind of thing of what if it doesn't work out, you're then lumbered with players for years and years who don't work out, which is what Chelsea have actually had in recent years. The likes of Tim yeah. away Bakayoko is kind of the prime example of that. Um, but I do think in that case, yeah, absolutely. If 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 the wages are not exorbitant, then you do have that kind of space to to sell them. And and I think what's going to be intriguing to me with this new ownership is as well how they navigate when to sell players, because I think that is something that the previous ownership in the last few years just consistently got wrong of hanging on to players for far too long. So that I don't know if you want to add anything on that, because that as much as a club of Chelsea wanted to be near the top of the food chain, you don't want to be selling your best players. But I think navigating selling I think is going to be as important in, in the next decade for this new ownership as buying those players particularly if if we're assuming that the front loading of the investment is taking place right now and they're not planning on spending this much over a longer period of time yeah I mean player sales are going to be a key part of things because especially in, in the summer ahead you know Chelsea will have to finance some of their spending through player sales as, as they have done and I think there is going to be an onus on, on looking at every single player probably quite unemotionally um you kind of use probably Jorginho as quite a good barometer for this you have a player with five months four months left on their contract you don't want to lose that player for nothing no matter no matter the fee you can get for him in January um you know as Chelsea have ended up sort of 12 13 million that is important for them going forward they don't want to lose assets for for nothing like they did with Rudiger and, and Andreas Christensen they want to be able to turn sort of player sales into to a revenue stream of course they do so it will be interesting going into summer who they look at who they believe is sellable and and who believe they can get um sort of major fees for and and you know there may come decisions that fans don't like there may be senior players that move on there may be popular players that move on but from the ownership perspective they have to take everything into account like contract length like age um profile do they fit into Graham Potter's system longer term? Do they fit into the club's ideal longer term? And and, um, and yeah, in the summer, it might be interesting to see just who stays and uh, and who goes because there will be a shake-up on the squad again. Particularly on the sales front, given how, I mean, they're having to build, I think, new lockers at the moment at Cobham, they make, make new car park spaces, you know, for, for people to... <laughs> 
to get involved so yeah it's, it, it will be intriguing and, and i'm sure as i say it will probably be controversial and people have different opinions on it but that that in itself is maybe a forgotten part of it because as fans we care more about probably player buyers than player sales but that is important in sort of building a squad uh thank you so much adam for joining me today a great conversation as ever uh I, most people watching this should be following you but if they're not uh, just shout out where people can find your work online and in any work you're going to be doing on football.london that people should be looking out for uh, just put uh, Adam Newson into Google and it will come up with all the relevant social pages and, and whatnot um, and yeah I mean it, it, say I, it's uh I'm going to have a piece on Jao Felix coming out next week uh, ahead of, of his expected return against West Ham. He finally will have served his suspension. So I'll have a sort of deeper dive into Jao Felix and his sort of career and, and how he's got to this point. Um, and there's a sort of another interview I've got lined up as well. So, um, so yes, yeah, follow the social channels and you'll see it all on there. I forget about Jao Felix. I completely forgot we have we still have him. Um, you know, fifth, we only got him for 55 minutes let's hope he doesn't two foot anyone again because hopefully we can get him for a little <laughs> bit longer this time to watch him on the pitch but uh, there we go there is the podcast thank you so much uh, for taking the time to watch it or listen to it Son of Chelsea is a part of the 90 Min Podcast Network if you did, did enjoy the podcast make sure to give us a positive rate and review it really does help out hit that subscribe button and the notification bell on YouTube follow me on Twitter at Son of Chelsea and I will see you again very soon all the best Sports Social Podcast Network